Let's pray. Oh, there I am. I'm alive. There we go. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken. Uh, In ages gone by, you spoke in many and various ways, through the prophets and other means. But now, once and for all, you have spoken through your Son. And we thank you that we have your word, the Bible, and it is able to show us Jesus. So, Father, we pray that tonight we would see Jesus clearly uh, and we would respond to him how he wants us to respond, which is in faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you find this, but I find there are certain stories in the Bible that when I read them, they just sort of resonate with me. They, they speak to me uh, more clearly, perhaps. I don't know if you find that. I have a few. And what generally happens for me is they're not necessarily the famous ones. So it's not, you know, like David and Goliath or Samson or those sort of things. I think my favourite story in the Old Testament is that great story where Elijah does battle with the prophets of Baal. Do people know that story? In 1 Kings 18. Uh, If you haven't read it before, go away and read it tonight before bed. It'll get you fired up and you won't go to sleep. But anyway, a great story where there, you know, he's, he's, he's challenging them to a contest that God will rain down fire and set alight the, the sacrifice on the altar. And he says, make it hard for the real God. And he, he gets water put all over it and God still answers his prayers. That's another of my favorite stories is Naaman the Syrian. Do people know Naaman the Syrian? And Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha. Uh, this one's in uh, 2 Kings 5 when he, he tells him he has to wash himself in the river over and over again to be cleansed of leprosy. And I don't know why those stories are my favourites. I was trying to work it out this afternoon. Uh, I don't know why they're my favourites, but for some reason they just resonate with me. And for me, this story from Mark 2, open up to Mark 2, this story is just another one of those stories for me. I think it's probably my favourite story in all four Gospels. I think it's my, my favourite moment. And certainly if you've been around here for any length of time, and especially if you've ever gone to where your small groups had an evangelistic night or something and you've asked me to come along and speak and you haven't given me any instructions, you'll have heard me speak on this passage because this is the passage I will speak on evangelistically if I have the opportunity to do it. So I was trying to think during the week, why is it such a favourite of mine? And I think a part of it goes back to when I was eight or nine years old in Brisbane and uh, what I did in Sunday school. Uh, now, it's amazing that I remember anything from Sunday school, I have to tell you. And uh, this should, if you are one of our kids' church teachers, you, you are to be praised beyond all measure. And I just think my Sunday school teachers from Brisbane, they will have extra crowns in heaven. They really will, for had, having had me, because uh, I was a terrible student in Sunday school. Uh, but I still remember what they did with this. We did a craft where we had a shoebox. And we had Star Wars figures. And for an eight or nine-year-old boy in the early 80s, that was amazing stuff. And so we lowered Luke Skywalker down through the roof with bits of wool and a, and a cardboard stretcher. And, and Luke Skywalker was healed. You know, it was amazing stuff. The, the funny thing was, though, he could still only bend in the middle because that's what <laughs> Star Wars figures could do if you've ever seen them. But anyway, uh, that might be one reason it resonates with me. But I actually think it's more than that. I think as I've grown up as I've, uh, and I've come to know Jesus, I, I love this story because it's just one of those moments where you just get a wonderfully clear picture of Jesus. I think that's why I love it, on the one hand. But on the other hand, it, it's a great moment because it actually gives us a wonderfully clear picture of ourselves and, and what Jesus means for us. Uh, I think that's why I love this passage. 
But anyway, enough about me. Let's get into this story. Now, remember where we are? We're in chapter 1. Just flick back through chapter 1. Remember what's happened. Mark doesn't start with the Christmas story like uh, Matthew and Luke do. He starts with Jesus basically as an adult and with the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So two weeks ago, we saw Jesus went down near Jerusalem in Judea and was baptised by John and the start of his ministry. Uh, And you remember, he went out into the wilderness. He was tempted by Satan, but he did not sin. Then last week, we saw how he then travelled back up to the north, went up to Galilee, where he came from, and he started doing what he was doing. Uh, And he based himself in his hometown, or what had become his hometown, called Capernaum. Uh, And remember what we saw last week. What was his number one priority? What was the thing he said, this is what I'm here to do? Preaching. Preaching the good news. Inviting people to repent and believe in him. Uh, But he's also been doing other things. He's been casting out demons. We saw that last week. He's been healing people left, right and centre. And because of that, the people are flocking to him. Bringing everyone to be healed. And the crowds are so big that, that it's sort of overwhelming. And he has to withdraw off into the desert places, into the deserted places. He has to withdraw off there just to get away from these crowds. So you get this incredible picture at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 45. Uh, It says, Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places, and they would come to him from everywhere. In the end of Mark chapter 1, there's a real triumphant tone to Jesus' early ministry, amazing things are happening. He was mobbed wherever he went. People are flocking to him. But mainly to be healed is the picture you get as you read that chapter. But after a few days out in the deserted places, he sort of sneaks back in to Capernaum where he was living and he starts teaching again. But very, very quickly he gets mobbed again uh, and everyone works out his home and sort of crowds in. And so you have this wonderful picture where there's just no room at the house for anyone to get in or out. Jesus is there sitting in the, like the living room or whatever, the downstairs room. And, and so many people have come. They've crowded in, but they're in the doorways. They're overflowing out of the windows. It's, it's sort of chaos. Uh, but then there's these four blokes who come along. And they're sort of the focus of the story. And these four blokes, they want to see Jesus because their friend is paralysed. He couldn't walk. And so these four mates carry him to Jesus on something like a stretcher or a mat. But they couldn't get through the massive crowds to get him to Jesus. They're sort of thinking, surely Jesus might just be able to do something. He might just be able to help our friend. But they're not easily put off. They're sort of can-do men. Uh, So they climb up on the roof. The houses of that time weren't like this you know, with sort of roofs roofs that you've sort of got to clamber up. They were flat, mud-based sort of houses with a flat roof. And they climbed up on to the roof. Uh, and what did they do? Look at verse 4. It says, they removed the roof above where he was. It's a really matter of fact, isn't it? They removed the roof <laughs> of someone's house, you know. They dug a hole. That's how desperate they were. I think that's another reason I love this story. I, I think this is just a great example of what a friend will do for a friend, what a true friend will do. And I love the way they bring their friends to Jesus. It's really a bit of a long bow, but I I think it it just reminds us that is what a friend does. If you love someone, you will bring them to Jesus. That's what a friend does for their friend, and that's what these guys do. But anyway, they cut this hole, and then they lower the guy down on the mat, and there he is sort of plonked in front of Jesus. 
in the middle of the room. As I said before, this moment in Jesus' life is just designed for kids' ministry. It really is. Great plays, great craft with this. But there's Jesus, and I sort of visualise him a bit like someone in one of those renovation shows. You know how they love to get photos of them covered in asbestos dust and all that sort of, and, and whatever else they've been cutting out walls and all that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, there's Jesus, and you just imagine the dust on his head, and he's looking up at the hole in the ceiling, and I have this other image where, sort of like in the cartoons, each of the four mates has a head over one edge of the hole, sort of peering down to see what Jesus will do. And so Jesus looks up at them, and then he looks down at the bloke on the floor. And everyone is expecting him to do what? Everyone is expecting him to say, get up and walk. That's what everyone wants him to do. You know, we've heard this Jesus can do miracles, but, but this, is, this is not a fever like Simon Peter's mother last week. Uh, this is not a bad back or something like that. It's can Jesus possibly make a paralysed man walk? That is a miracle. And what does Jesus do? Look at it there in verse 5 of the passage. He looks down at the guy and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. We've heard the story before, but, but that's a shocking thing that he does there. Just put yourself uh, in the situation of the paralysed man lying there on the floor or, or put yourself in, in the shoes of the four men up on the ceiling, up on the roof. How do you think that bloke is feeling at that point? How do you think his mates are feeling at that point? You know, what's going through their minds? They're thinking, good on you, Jesus. You know, thanks, but what about making him walk? Make him walk. Can't you see? You're the one person who can do it. That's what he needs. That's what we want you to do. Make him walk. But Jesus didn't say get up and walk. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Why? That's the question we're meant to ask. Why? Well, Jesus is actually making two very, very important points here. The first he's making is about himself, and the second one is about us. But I'm going to talk about us first. Jesus is saying that whatever our physical problems are, we all have a deeper spiritual problem, the problem of sin. Jesus' constant message was that he has come into this world to preach the gospel. Why? Because we all have this deeper problem in our hearts. However physically well we are, or however physically unwell we are, we all have this spiritual sickness. And even the biggest physical needs are not as profound as our spiritual need. See, we have all turned our backs on God. We have all said to the God of the universe, I'll live my way, thanks. I know you've made me, but I'll live my way. That's sin. And it's because of our sin that the world is not how it's meant to be. It's because of our, our sin that the world is broken. It's in, through our sin that we hurt others. It's because of our sin that we deserve God's judgment. Our sin is our biggest problem. If you didn't get it last week, this is why preaching was Jesus' number one priority. And it's why it must be our number one priority as well. Every so often, Christians sort of think, Oh, should our number one priority be helping the poor? Should our number one priority be going and healing the sick? 
Should that be our number one priority? And as grating as it sounds, when you look out at a world that has such incredible needs, the answer is no. We do those things out of love. And Christians lead the way in caring for the poor. And Christians lead the way in caring for the sick. But our number one priority is preaching the gospel because it is Jesus' number one priority because he would say, what good is it curing a man of leprosy if he still faces the eternal judgment of God? And he would say to us, what good is it giving a man quality of life for 50 years if he still has to stand before the judgment seat of God? But at any point, Jesus didn't just point out the problem here. He isn't one of those people who tells you what's wrong and then leaves you to work it out. Jesus didn't look down and say, hey, you know how you're paralysed. Well, actually, you've got a bigger problem than that. He said, I have come to deal with that bigger problem. Jesus came to offer forgiveness, not judgment. He came to offer forgiveness, not condemnation. And of course, we know how he offers that forgiveness because we, see, we know the full story. We've started reading Mark's Gospel knowing the end already. We know how he offers forgiveness by his death on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve for our sin. But at this point, he's not explaining the how. He's leaving that for the future. At this point, he's offering the hope. The promise of forgiveness. Son, your sins are forgiven. So that's the point Jesus was making about us. But I said before, he was also making a second point about himself. And the people there listening, they saw that point straight away. See, the funny thing you see right through Mark's gospel, and we're going to see it just in the second half of our reading uh, a little later on, uh, is who was it that loved Jesus? It was the sinners. It's the sinners who loved Jesus, the people whose sin was obvious because they looked at their lives and they said, he's right. Jesus is right. I don't live how God wants me to. I do need forgiveness. They didn't all follow Jesus. It wasn't like every sinner became a Christian because some decided he's right, but I'm going to keep living my life my way anyway. But they knew Jesus was right. But who were the people who really hated Jesus? Look around this room. This was the type of people who hated Jesus. The religious people. The respectable people. They hated Jesus. But in particular, it was the self-righteous people who hated Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was saying to them, you've got the problem too. Jesus was saying to them, you're just as spiritually sick as those people you judge and despise. You've got the problem too. And they really, really didn't like that. Well, there were some of those people there that day. And when they heard Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven, they nearly had a heart attack. Uh, Let's look at verse 6. It says, but some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We just don't get this. Because we've, we've come after 2,000 years of Christian history and Christian witness, so we don't get this. We're used to ministers like me talking about how we're forgiven for our sins. We're used to singing songs about how we're all forgiven for our sins. We don't see how outlandish Jesus is here, but these people do. You see, they knew something. They knew sin is between me and God, and your sin is between you and God. It's only God who can forgive sins. No man can do it. 
It's a bit like if I came up to you tonight over supper. Actually, if I walk down there now, I won't do it. It's a bit dangerous. If I walk down there and I just slapped you in the face. Does someone want to, do we want an illustration? Anyway, <laughs> if I walk down it, no, because I might be tempted. No, don't. Um, but if I walk down and I slapped you in the face, and then Jason calls out, it's okay, Phil, I forgive you. How do you feel if you're the person I've slapped in the face? Or if I walk out into the car park on my way home tonight and see someone's car there that looks a bit nicer than mine and I just pull out my car keys and I just go down the side. And then Jason again, walking with me, says, it's okay, Phil, I forgive you. Puts his arm on my shoulder and gives me a hug. You know, it, How do you feel at that point? How do you feel? You feel angry, don't you? And righteously so. You say, it's not Jason's right to forgive you. I'm the one you've wronged. I've got to forgive you or not forgive you if I choose not to. Well, in the same way, these people knew no man has the right to forgive sins. Only God has been wronged. God must forgive sins. And so they knew what Jesus was saying at this point. They knew Jesus was saying, I have the authority of God. That's what Jesus was saying. I speak for God. And they thought perhaps he's even saying, I am not just a man. I am God in the flesh, the Son of God here on earth. When Jesus said he could forgive sins, he was claiming something incredible for those with ears to hear. And that just takes things to a whole new level. And these religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees, they knew it. That's why they said, this is blasphemy, and blasphemy is a, has the death penalty. This is the point where they decided, we're going to put him to death. Because he is claiming to be God. And so to prove the point, to prove that he could forgive sins, look what Jesus did, verse 8. Right away, Jesus understood in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your mat and walk? It's a great question, isn't it? Which one is easier? Which one is easier? It's much easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Isn't it? I'm happy to say that, but if you bring a paralysed man in, I am not going to say, get up and walk. Because you'll see me for the fraud straight away. You see, because no one can tell if anything's happened or not when you say, son, your sins are forgiven. But in another sense, if he's telling the truth, then it's much, much harder to say, son, your sins are forgiven. Because only God can do that. So what does Jesus do? He does the thing they think is harder to prove to do the thing that is actually harder. Does that make sense? Verse 10. He says, But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, picked up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. And so you see, by healing the man, what Jesus is doing is he's actually throwing the gauntlet down to the scribes and the Pharisees. And they knew what he was saying. That's why they decided to kill him. They knew what he was saying. See, they knew you can't ignore someone 
who claims to be God. You can't. Because if he's lying, it's blasphemy and he deserves to die. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But actually what they did to Jesus, he deserved if he was lying. But if he's telling the truth, well, the only right response is to worship him. And so that then becomes the most important question anyone can ask. Is Jesus who he said he was? If he isn't, then just ignore him. That's the right thing to do. If he isn't, just ignore him and go out and eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If Jesus isn't who he said he was. But if he is, then we have to listen, don't we? And the right response is to turn and trust in him to receive that forgiveness that he so freely offers. And I just want to pause at this point and make sure you've done that. Don't get distracted by the fact that this microphone seems to be going in and out because this is very, very important. I want to pause and ask you, have you ever done that? It is possible to be a part of a church forever and never actually turn and trust in Jesus to find the forgiveness he offers. Especially for a congregation like this, where many of you have grown up in Christian homes and you've come through the youth group and all that sort of thing, it is possible to sit there and hear this wonderful teaching and for it to just wash over you. And so you stand unforgiven. I want to say to you, if you have never truly turned to God and said, I believe Jesus is your son and I want the forgiveness he offers, if you've never done that, do it tonight. Can I ask you to do that? God, in the quietness of your mind, in the quietness of your own heart, and pray to him and say, God, I am a sinner. I recognize it. I need forgiveness. And I want you to give it to me. Thank you for sending your son for me. Do it tonight if you've never done it. Come and tell me afterwards or tell one other person. Come to know Christ. I'm going in and out like everything here. But it's so important. Tell someone else if you've done that so they can encourage you. What's going on with it? Let's see if we can work it out together. Troy's very good at this sort of stuff. It's just interference, I think. Okay. There's someone else listening to their stereo next door or something, interfering with it. For those of us here, though, who have done that, for those of us here who know and love the Lord Jesus, well, I think the right response for us is what? It's just to be astounded. That's the right response. To be astounded again and again by our Lord. See, the funny thing is, as we were reading that story, for many of us here, when it got to the, and he got up and walked, it was like we were reading the Sydney Morning Herald, page seven, and that's really irrelevant, you know. Because we know that he's going to make the guy walk. Because we're so familiar with it, it should astound us. Astound us that our Lord can do that. So like the people there that day, the right response is to give the glory to God for sending his son who can heal, yes, but more than that, who can forgive our sins. Isn't that right? Well, if we move on, we're going to move on to these last two little stories quickly. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is wonderfully written. Some people don't realise this, but, but even if it wasn't true, and it is true, it's a wonderful piece of literature. Uh, and Mark does this incredible job of drawing together this story because he had three years worth of material to work with 
and he pulled it together in 16 chapters. So not everything Jesus did is in here. So what Mark does is he puts together the different sort of aspects and different things that happen in a way that helps us get this picture of Jesus. So what happens in these next two little stories expands on what Jesus has just done in that first story. So the first moment is the calling of Levi there in verses 13 and 14. Look at it with me. Jesus has, has gone out from Capernaum again. He's gone into the countryside. He, he's teaching. The crowds are coming to him. But then the camera focuses in on his conversation with just this one man, Levi. And it really is crazy what happens. Jesus goes up to him and he's sitting at his tax office where he works. And Jesus says to him just two words, follow me. No small talk. No explanation, just follow me. If you think about it, that's incredibly arrogant, unless Jesus is who he says he is. But what's even more amazing is Levi's response, because all it says is, look at the end of verse 14 there, all it says is, so he got up and followed him. Don't you sort of want to say to Levi, hang on a minute, Levi, slow down. Have you, have you weighed up all the options here? Maybe you need to consider the evidence more. You should maybe do a Christianity Explained course before you make this, this big decision. Uh, you, you need to do a risk analysis. Uh, you're giving up everything. You're, you're leaving the money sitting there on the bench where anyone will take it. And you're just walking off and following Jesus. You're giving up everything. You're giving up your job. You're giving up your security. Anyone looking would say, Levi has lost his mind. Now, we don't know the backstory. You sort of assume Levi must have heard Jesus' teaching before this, mustn't he? You know, he must have seen some of the miracles. This mustn't have come out of a vacuum. But even so, it's an amazing decision from Levi, isn't it? And an amazing call from Jesus. But the thing is, it's here because that is the call that Jesus makes on every person, on every one of us. When it's all said and done, Jesus says to us, follow me. That's what it is to be a Christian, a decision to follow Jesus. Will I be my own boss or will Jesus be my Lord? Will I set my own path or will I walk in Jesus' footsteps? And everyone has to make that decision. And you just get a little glimpse with Levi here of what I might call the totality of that decision. We're not all called to leave our jobs at a minute's notice like Levi. But we are all called to follow Jesus with everything. That's what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. When we become a Christian, when we become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, it's not something we just add to our other interests. It's not like when I became a Christian, you know, it's not like you're a tax collector and a husband and a father or, and a rugby league supporter and, and a disciple of Jesus and you just add Sunday night to your list of interests and your list of timeouts. We are a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple of Jesus is willing to drop everything to follow him. That's why Mark's gospel is full of these stories where Jesus says to people, what must you do to follow me? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. He's not saying that is what everyone must do, but he's saying that's how big a decision it is to come and follow the Lord Jesus. You see... It must radically shape us, radically shape everything else. That is our calling. It must change us. It must change our attitudes. It must change our decisions. It must change our goals, our aspirations. In particular, it means we hang loosely 
to all the things of this world. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And you see that in Levi. But I think there's another reason this story is here. It's to show us the type of people Jesus called to be his disciple. If I was ever going to start my own religion, which is a scary thought, and make it in my own image, that would be even scarier. If I was ever to start my own religion, who would I go and say, these are the people I must get as my first disciples? I'd go and find some impressive people. I'd go and find some people who, who other people loved. Jesus didn't do that. Is there anyone here, I've just got to ask, is there anyone here who works for the tax office? No one who's willing to admit it. No one likes tax collectors, do they? You know, it's just, a, it's just unchanging thing from history. No one likes tax collectors, just like no one likes parking inspectors. You, you, you know, but it's nothing personal for us. It's nothing personal. We just don't like their job. We don't like the fact they take money off us that we don't want to give. Uh, we don't hate them, do we? We don't hate them. We don't think they're evil. People back then thought tax collectors were evil, with good reason. Because they were the Jews who had deserted their own people to get rich. That's what they were. They were the people who deserted their own people and they went and worked for the Roman occupiers and took money off their fellow Jews to pay for the soldiers who abused them. That was what they did. And more than that, they skimmed money off the top for themselves. They were expected to. It was just part of the deal. If you went into the town, the man with the nicest house was the tax collector. So they hated them. That's why all through the New Testament you have it, whenever they want to say someone's really bad, they say he's like a tax collector. He's like a, the, the tax collectors and the sinners. They, they sort of rank the tax collectors and the prostitutes together as the lowest of the low. But that is who Jesus called to be his disciple. And that leads us into the last little story here in verses 15 to 17. Jesus went back to eat with Levi in verse 15. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also guests with Jesus and his disciples because there were many who were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Funny thing is, as I read that, somewhat ironically, I immediately rush to judge the scribes and the Pharisees. I think, yeah, you judgmental so-and-sos, you know. The point the thing is, their question is legitimate. We would ask the same question. See, they're saying, we go to church. We work hard at being holy. We read our Bibles. These people do nothing, and if anything, they, they, they abuse religious people like us. And if Jesus is claiming to be who he claims to be, then how on earth could he associate with people like us and sh like them and shun people like us who are holy and righteous? But Jesus' answer is one of the great sentences of Scripture. Verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. See, who else would the saviour want to associate with if not the people who need saving? Of course, the irony is that these scribes and Pharisees are not as righteous as they believe. They're sinners too. 
They need the doctor just as much as everyone else. But until they realise that, they will never turn to Jesus and find forgiveness. See, what this reminds us is that Jesus is not interested in people who come to him for affirmation of how good they are. Jesus is not interested in people who want to come before him and say, God, gee, I'm righteous, not like those people over there. He is interested in people who know that they are sick. He is interested in people who know that they need saving. He's interested in people who come to him with nothing and say, I've got nothing to offer, but please forgive me. It's like that hymn we sing. Have we got, Alex, we've got it here on the screen. You know that uh, hymn, Rock of Ages? It's my favourite hymn for so many reasons. The most important reason is the name of the guy who wrote it. I just think Augustus Montague Toplady is the greatest name for a hymn writer in history. But he also wrote some great words. And this is one of his verses. He said, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Leave it up there, Alex. That is how we come to God. He understood it. We don't come saying, God, yeah, I need Jesus, but I'm pretty good. And I've done all these things for you, and this is why you should accept me. We come to God carrying nothing, helpless, naked. It's funny, though. You know that. I know that. We say it every week in church. We sing that song probably far more than we should because I like it so much. And we sing other songs every week. We've already sung some tonight where we affirm that. We all know it, but often we don't know that. Not really. See, often over time, we Christians, and Christians have been doing it for 2,000 years without fail, we become like the Pharisees. It's what we do. We, just, we start off saying, I come with nothing, but over time we start to think, yeah, but I'm pretty good. We start to think, I can come before God on the basis of my own righteousness. And what that leads to is we play that comparison game. You know what I'm talking about? Where we look down on those sinners over there and think, God must be happier with me because I've got it all together because I'm more respectable. I'm more righteous than them. And what happens is we stop coming before God confessing our sin and saying, God, I can only come before you on the basis of Jesus. I've got nothing. We stop doing that and instead we presume on him and we marvel instead and congratulate ourselves on our own righteousness. And so what happens then is when the sinner comes in, when the sinner comes in amongst us to find grace and to find forgiveness, sadly, all too often, Christians make them feel unwelcome. And no matter what is said from the front, sadly, we make them feel unworthy. And so they get the message loud and clear, whatever the preacher says, whatever the songs we sing, they get the message loud and clear as the Christian looks down their nose at them. They get the message, Jesus is not for me because I'm not good enough. How do we remedy that in ourselves? How do we vaccinate ourselves against becoming like the Pharisees? There is only one way, only one way, 
It's by remembering every day that we, in and of ourselves, are the sinners, not the righteous. That's the only way. By remembering that we are only righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. That we don't bring something to God. He comes to us and offers forgiveness. The remedy to being a Pharisee is very simple. It's to confess your sin to God every day. It's to come before God every day and say, God, I am a sinner. This is how I have failed. But you are a wonderful saviour who has forgiven me. That's the remedy to being a Pharisee. Coming before God every day, confessing our sin and thanking him for the wonderful forgiveness we have in Jesus. That's the remedy. Go back again to verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, those who are well don't need a doctor, but the sick do need one. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I can tell you, I am one sinner who is eternally grateful for that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, forgive us of our tendency to be like the Pharisees. Forgive us for the way we forget that we are sinners saved only by grace. And all too often we start to think that somehow we deserve your love and we deserve your forgiveness. We deserve your righteousness. Father, help us instead to know that we are sinners. And so we pray that we would not fall into the trap of the Pharisees. We would not compare ourselves to others. Instead, we would hold out the message of grace to anyone who wants to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.